Untie the boat, let the wind blow you where the wind blows. Note by note, let the cords unravel, let the corpse travel on its course. Note by note, time will sow you across the fields of endless force. Now you're on your way in the sacred Welcome to Enhanced Therapy Podcast. My name is Derek Davda, and today, today I'm speaking with Gould Dolan, a neuroscientist from Johns Hopkins University. She's a very creative thinker. She's coming up with these amazing ideas that are super relevant to the field of psychedelic therapies and MDMA-assisted therapy. Gould has published in the most prestigious journals on this planet, including Neuron, Science, and Nature. She recently made appearances on a, on a bunch of podcasts, including Tim Ferriss' show. So I am very excited to, uh, to talk to Gould Dolan today. A couple of things. First of all, uh, we had a little bit of uh, problems with sound. My sound, Gould's sound is good, which is good, right? Because it's all about Gould here anyway. So, you know, we did the best, best job we can. So hopefully that's good enough. Another point here is that if you find any value in this podcast, please leave a comment. Also, um, please, if you think uh, any of your friends or family members would benefit, please share, recommend the podcast. As you know, you know, there's millions of podcasts out there and the survival of this podcast is entirely dependent on whether people will listen to it. So there we go. Let's do it. I'm very excited. Ghoul Dolan. You came up with this elegant, fascinating theory. I'd say probably the most consequential theory for understanding how MDMA and other psychedelic therapies work. Uh, and um, so I wonder whether we can start right there, whether you, you'd be open to uh, uh, telling us a little bit about the critical periods, how they get reopened, and, and tell us a little bit about your research and how, you know, the whole story of how you... <laughs> How you discovered all, all this? All right. Well, thank you for having me on again. Um, yeah, it seems like so much time has passed because, you know, I remember the last time we spoke, it was, um, you know, I had this feeling like we still had to be very careful and, you know, who knows, maybe it's going to get approved, maybe it's not. Um, and now we're just past the second um, clinical trial, phase three clinical trial for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, and it just, you know, the second one has been published, and it just feels like mm. it's it's a totally different world that we're in from just a few years ago when, totally. we, when we last spoke. But, um, yeah, so just to sort of orient your audience, um, you know, when we first published the 2019 paper, of course, that paper took us something like five years to complete, and you know, when we started working on that project, we very much had the idea that, you know, MDMA was special amongst the psychedelics because it has this pro-social property. And we thought, of course, it reopens the social reward learning critical period because it's got this social property. Um, and we really thought the entire effect was about that 
pro-social properties specific to MDMA that didn't generalize across psychedelics. And we thought the explanation for the therapeutic effects of MDMA um, assisted psychotherapy was just that, you know, it, it strengthened the therapeutic alliance with the uh, therapist because of this pro-social element, but also, you know, made people love themselves more. And that, that, and, and that opening of the critical period was really very specific to, you know, the social components and, and loving oneself and one lo- loving one's therapist. And so we were pretty surprised. And, facilit- and facilitate- facilitating some other uh, relationships right. and some healing in other relationships uh, on the side. That's right. Well. That's right. We were, we were definitely thinking yeah. about peer-peer facilitation groups and 12-step, facil- you know, 12-step programs, you know, all of these social contexts. And then also, you know, just right. going back into your community and being able to relate openly with people again after, you know, years of, of trauma, yeah. right? And so... Primary relationships as well. Yeah, and so that's how we were thinking of it. It was just about about the relationships and the social part of it. So it was a little bit of a surprise when it turned out that all of the psychedelics that we tested, so we tested ibogaine, psilocybin, LSD, um, ketamine, in addition to MDMA all had this property of being able to reopen this critical period. And so immediately what that suggested to us is... And you're speaking about the specific critical period for social reward learning, for social bonding, yes. or all critical well, periods? So well, so the only critical period we've you know published so far is the social reward learning. But the fact that... Okay. The fact that... Um, psychedelics that don't have this pro-social property, right? Like nobody's doing a 60-person cuddle puddle on LSD, right? It's not a particularly pro-social, mm-hmm. although, you know, people mm-hmm. will sort of report after the fact a sense of interconnectedness with the universe, but, you know, it's not the, it's not the same property that makes MDMA an empathogen or, you know, that very pro-social forward kind of kind of property. And so... We, we started to think, well, maybe the thing that unites all of the psychedelics, namely, you know, this altered state of consciousness, this heightened perception, this different relationship to time and space and body and emotions, this altered state is, you know, what unifies all psychedelics. And we thought, well, maybe this is just what it feels like to open this critical period. And if so, maybe it's all critical periods and the social part of it is just, you know, because we that's what we happen to be looking at. And so to kind of further probe that question, we also wanted to look at what are some of the other differences across psychedelics. So, um, you know, ketamine lasts about 30 minutes to two hours, the acute subjective yes, effects, yes. whereas, yeah. you know, psilocybin and MDMA are more like three to six hours. And then LSD is more like eight to 10 hours. And Ibogaine is kind of the rock star of the group in that, you know, it, it's, it's acute subjective effects last, you know, sometimes up to three days. And so we wanted to know, is there some relationship between the duration of the acute subjective effects and how long these drugs are able to keep the critical period open? And we found that they were proportional. So, you know, ketamine keeps it open the shortest, Ibogaine keeps it in, open the longest, and, you know, um, LSD 
psilocybin and MDMA are, are sort of in the middle. And so what this suggests to us is that, yes, mechanistically they're related, the, the acute subjective effects and the duration of the open state. And because of that, it lends further support to the idea that, you know, the phenomenology, what it feels like to be in that altered state is just what it feels like to be reopening critical periods. It also suggests a couple of other things. Um, so one of them is, is that, you know, there are a lot of drug companies out there who are kind of following a somewhat old-fashioned playbook of let's, you know, discover a mechanism, let's figure out um, a way to engineer new variants that we can then patent, and then we can shorten, you know, sell them as better than the original because in this case, the way the drug companies are approaching it is, well, we can engineer out the psychedelic side effects and we can shorten the trip so that people don't have to sit in the doctor's office for so many hours and they can essentially take a pill and go home. And that that model, that biochemical model, you know, has been meagerly successful, if at all, with um, SSRIs. Um, and it's the playbook that most of the drug companies are very comfortable with. And so here More we have... Lots of ketamine, yeah. lots of ketamine therapies being done. Yes, so most ketamine... So that's, that's, that's actually one of, one of your points that is very, very important. Yeah. The length of the subjective effect correlates with the length of the opening of the critical period. You know what? I was just wondering. I'm just... I'm, I'm aware of the, that uh, a whole bunch of people will be listening to this that would probably love a little bit uh, more in-depth overview, just maybe a, a quick in-depth overview of critical uh -huh. periods, your research. What are you talking about when you're talking about critical periods? Why are they closed? Why do are we reopening right. them? What the hell are we doing? <laughs> Why is it so important? I know you've probably been talking about this now, you know, over and over. So it sounds like you're a rock star going from one concert to another, singing <laughs> the same songs. I, I think this is so, such a, such a mind-blowing idea. And could we, could we go back? Do you no, mind I would, I would, giving I, us a little lesson? Yeah, from... I don't mind. I, I actually, I love it because, you know, right now, psychedelics are all the rage and everybody loves talking about psychedelics. But the way that I came into this field was really as a neurobiologist, basic neuroscientist. And I have been studying critical periods basically my almost my whole career. And that's because a critical period is this window of time when the brain is much more sensitive to its environment and able to make lasting memories and learn from that environment. But that window of time is very... Um, short for most of these types of things that we learn. And so the, the first one that was ever described is the critical period for imprinting behavior in snow geese. So this is the attachment that a little hatchling Lawrence. will form to its mother, typically, within the first 48 hours of hatching. And if the mother's not there, they'll form the attachment to any moving object in the vicinity. But 48 hours after hatching, that window closes and then the animal is not forming attachments to um, whatever's flying around in the environment. And, and Conrad Lorenz, who described this, called that the critical period. And since then, we've discovered literally dozens of other critical periods for things like language. You know, this is why it's so much harder to learn a second language when you're an adult. This is why, you know, if you do learn a second language as an adult, you always have a, an accent and... 
Um, there are other critical periods too for vision, for touch, for smell, for every, every, well, I'm not sure smell is a little bit controversial, but all the rest of the sensory systems have critical periods. The motor systems have critical periods. And we've discovered that the emotional social systems also have a critical period. And the bonding, the social bonding. Yes. And it's all about the, about efficiency because, uh, because the critical periods open. And that's a very energy, it requires a lot of energy to, 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 to do new learning, but it's necessary. So you, you just throw all your energy into that window of, of, of a critical period. You learn what you need to learn. And the idea is that once you learn what you needed to learn, that's enough. So the window closes. That's right. Is that that's, correct? That's right. I mean, there are two reasons people think that critical periods... Well, first, let me explain why people think critical periods exist at all. And that's because... There just aren't enough genes available to encode every possible behavior. So instead, what gets encoded is the ability to learn so that your your genome doesn't have to encode 260 possible languages. It just encodes the ability to learn whatever language is appropriate to your environment. They close, you know, the idea is that they close for two reasons. One is the one that you just mentioned, which is that you know, it's energetically costly to be in an open state and critical period open states are difficult. They, you know, require a lot of energy and attention and they make it difficult to navigate the world efficiently if you're constantly having to pay attention to every little thing and notice and and, and learn from your environment. Um, think about how, how easily... Uh, distracted children are, you know, you go on a walk with a a two-year-old and it takes 10 times as long as normal, not just because they're walking slowly, but because, you know, they're noticing, oh, you know, look at this leaf. Oh, look at this bug. Oh, you know, my shoelace, you know, and they're just, they're just noticing everything. And it makes it really hard to kind of just walk forward and the way that an adult does, which is goal-oriented, get to the end of the trail, come back, right? And so, um, that's one reason. And that's sort of what happens to us <laughs> when we when we use psychedelics. We become yes. Children. I mean that that very much fits with our idea of what happens acutely on uh, psychedelics. People will kind of describe that that wandering. I call it herding kittens. You know, like people on psychedelics. You know, you just can't get them out the door. They're noticing everything. Um, the other reason that people think that critical periods close is is that it's somewhat destabilizing, right, to constantly be adapting your brain to the environment. So, for example, in the context of the visual system, you know, you learn the visual statistics, and if you are constantly unlearning them and relearning them, the visual information is not as stably encoded. Similarly, with friends, you know, or in social groups, you know, in order for your social group to be stable, it, it sort of helps if you're not so easily able to make friends later on, right? Like if, if that, that helps cohere the group to say, this is our posse, we, don't ha- we, we have enough members, we're done, right? And so um, yeah. it's sort of a fidelity and most people might be a, So most people might be aware by now uh, so much neuroscience stuff, but the, seeing is actually more, uh, it's, it's a lot of projecting uh, uh, outwards of your predictive models and uh, and only a little bit of, uh, of actual perception from outside. Well, I mean, I, I guess I would say it's it's all 
it's all an interpretation. In other words, you know, the, the visual information that's coming into the eyes, I mean, probably the easiest illusion that you, anybody can do to convince themselves that the, the thing that we call vision is really, you know, a percept that is constructed by the brain of information that's coming in through the eyes, typically, um, is if you put, you know, your finger out and then in front, in front of your face and then you just close one eye and then close the other eye and you see the finger jumping, you know, from side to side. And that's because the visual information that's coming into each of the eyes is slightly off register from each other. But the brain constructs the, that information from each eye and combines it into a single percept that now has depth perception. And that's how we see depth, right? Is that that construction that the brain makes of the two pieces of visual information that are slightly different from each other and then and then comparing them. So and in terms of re relational patterns, it's a similar similar kind of um, idea that we create those during the critical periods, we create a more, a some sort of ways of understanding how relationships work. And then we impose those ways on, on our future relationships with this. That's right. And I mean, just like the reason it's thought that we have a visual critical period is because the distance between our two eyes changes as our, our face matures and our head matures. You know, as we enter into new social groups, right, when we're born, we're mostly in our sort of nest with our siblings and our parents. And then eventually we get older and we join a larger group of, you know, peers and we have to establish, you know, the hierarchies, the dynamics, the rules, what's polite, what's impolite, what's considered, you know, being a good Samaritan, what's considered being selfish, what's considered, you know, being helpful you know, and who the right alliances and the right, you know, villains are, all of those things we have to learn. Um, and it can be very different depending on what environment you end up in, right? Um, whether you end up in a, you know, a social group where you're the dominant or you're the beta or you're the biggest or you got there first or, you know, there are more females and there are more males, you know, all of these kinds of things can alter the dynamics and you have to be adaptable to whatever social group that you you land in. What I do think is that a little bit, you know, because of the, the first paper, the 2019 Nature paper, you know, we were thinking about social, 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 but in the new paper, the fact that all of the psychedelics do it is kind of got us thinking that the social aspect of it is a little bit of a red herring. In other words, I think that what's happened is, is that because we were looking at a social critical period, we, we looked to see whether or not these drugs could reopen the critical period, this social critical period in a social context and not in an isolation context. And that's what we found with MDMA. And we were very happy because it was the first time anybody had demonstrated sort of this context dependence that we see in MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, right? Like you can't just take MDMA and go to a rave and, and cure your PTSD. You really need the psychotherapeutic context to make that, that um, transformation happen. And we thought, okay, this is the explanation. But I think that really which critical period we open, uh, I mean, this is the hypothesis we're testing now, which critical period you end up opening 
is dependent on what context you give. So if you change the context from a peer-to-peer social context to a parental social context, then maybe you can reopen a parental social uh, critical period. If you want to change a motor uh, critical period, if you want to reopen a motor critical period, then maybe you give MDMA in a motor context and then, you know, dancing at a rave is the relevant therapeutic context. So how how is that? How is that? So this is a hypothesis, right? Strong hypothesis. uh, (laughs) It's a strong hypothesis. I hope hypothesis. No, no. There's there's like this. It's pretty strong. Okay. How is how is it possible? You mentioned earlier that that the crit. No, you said that the critical period for social reward learning for social won't reopen if you don't have a social context. Could you explain that? You take MDMA. It's a chemical agent. It does its thing. Uh, You would think that. That you're open now. Right. <laughs> is it that nothing is going to happen when there is no social context? Well, so, I mean, the what we think is going on is, is that there are all these rules in place in the brain for detecting two things happening at the same time. So this is how we learn. We, we, we notice okay. that, you know, an apple is, you know, tastes like an apple, smells like an apple, and is red. Those three things, when they come together... Temporally and spatially, they are coincident with each other. And so over time, we learn what an apple looks like and smells like because that smell and that color and that weight and that feel always happen, co-occur in our in our experience, right? And so what people have looked for to try and explain learning and memory is coincidence detectors. And the first coincidence detector that was you know, described in this learning and memory context was actually the NMDA receptor, which is the receptor that ketamine binds to, okay? So this receptor has this very interesting property that it only gets activated if the neuron is already depolarized, right? And and there's, you know, I can go into the molecular details of that, but basically, unlike other glutamate receptors, which are activated just by the ligand binding to the receptor, This one requires the glutamate ligand binding to the receptor and the cell to already be depolarized because it's coincidentally activated by, let's say, red and the new ligand is for, say, you know, apple smell, right? And when those two things happen together, it says, learn this statistic, these two things are happening together. So this coincidence detection is a lot harder to explain for things like the serotonin 2A receptor or any of the other G protein coupled receptors or transporters that the other psychedelics are activating. But we have a hypothesis that that coincidence detection could be achieved using things like immediate early genes and timing them at at different times. And so what we think is happening is, is that the psychedelics, you know, overwhelm the synapse and hit sort of a triggering mechanism that says, hit the reset button, something is not is off here. Like kind of like when you're on a Zoom call and if suddenly your screen freezes for a couple of seconds, you hit the reset or you mm-hmm. reset your Wi-Fi or you turn your computer on and off and you, mm-hmm. you try and reset because you, you see that the signal is frozen and that's unusual and you know that that's a, probably an error of some kind. And so we think that that's what the psychedelics are doing at the molecular level 
and they're only resetting the synapses that are recently activated, perhaps through one of these coincidence detection mechanisms, is how they know that this is we're only gonna we're only gonna open the subset of synapses for this context, but not open all of the synapses or not open all of the critical the critical periods for all of the other behaviors that have not been recently activated. So that's that's our hypothesis. We don't actually have pr proof so for that yet, but we it's a strong hypothesis because of comparisons okay. to other critical period reopening mechanisms. Sounds very interesting and sounds a little bit complex <laughs> to me from the neuro neurobiology point of view. But would it mean that uh, you need both the the kind of inner chemistry and the outer experience for this? To yes, exactly. At the same exactly. time, yeah. So that's the. Yeah, so that that is the exact phenomenon we're trying to explain, right? That that the um, that it's not just taking a pill and then not thinking about your trauma. You need the pairing yeah. of the activity, the yeah. experience, the you know inner directed trip that makes you understand the context of the trauma, how you have internalized that and and wove it into the meaning of your narrative about yourself about the world and yes, right yes. and so all of the so that memory becomes available for mm -hmm. modification mm -hmm. because you've recently activated so that's why i think it's so mm -hmm. important that the, in the therapeutic context yeah. to have that pre the day before you or the couple of days before you take the psychedelic yeah. have that conversation with the therapist around the trauma mm -hmm. to sort of prime the memory circuits that are involved in that. The day of the trip, you know, not really actively yes. go towards that specific memory, but let your mind wander so that it can find all of the other related circuitries or possibly a different route to get to that memory that helps you understand how you've internalized that memory or what other belief systems are being, mm -hmm. are supporting that structure that habit-based um, pattern that you've established and then afterwards that integration I think is also really important for stabilizing the new memory while that critical period open state is still open um, and so I think you need all three phases of it and all three phases of it is you know why I think that MDMA assisted psychotherapy you know in clinical trials has been so much more successful than people who have taken, say, the COMPASS trials, for example, where they just gave psilocybin for depression and treated it like a next-generation SSRI. And then what they saw is, is that, well, the therapeutic effects were not different from SSRIs, right? They were sort of mediocre or not at all, right? Mm -hmm. And I think this is because in those trials, they were treating the psychotherapy as just there to make sure somebody, you know, if they're having a bad trip, there's somebody there to catch them if they're if they're having a bad trip but the therapy itself was not the focus of the intervention it was just sort of on the side um, and i think that that's the main difference between the compass trials and the maps trials is the emphasis on the learning the memories yes. the relearning mm -hmm. and recontextualizing yeah. and that's what we're trying to explain with this critical period model. Really, yeah, really the emphasis on, on therapy and on, on DNA and other psychedelics being the catalysts for enhancing the therapy. That's right. Or making it more powerful rather than DNA or psilocybin being the agents of change themselves. Right. 
So yeah, so there are these two competing kind of paradigms right now in psychedelics. So you, we are talking about psychotherapy being primary and, uh, and psychedelics being uh, to, to facilitate psychotherapy. We're not talking about, uh, about the, the drugs themselves being used on, on their own and creating those therapeutic benefits, which your theory directly speaks to. One, one question I was going to ask you, though, um, is that there has been actually a, a recent paper and some controversy about psilocybin. There's people, some people argue that psilocybin doesn't need as much because it's less social. I'm not committed to any of this. I'm just asking a question. That psilocybin needs less integration and, and less therapy and has a, a bigger potential to be actually beneficial with um, just the proper the basic sort of safety and all that. Yeah, I mean, basically, yeah, I mean, basically, I think that that is, I don't, I don't, looking at the COMPASS trials and comparing them to the MAPS trials, I would say that, you know, in the biggest studies that we found, that's not true, right? That, 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 that okay. idea that psilocybin is somehow mechanistically different and that it's really just a, fancy or upgraded or next generation SSRI, I would say that the data don't really support that. There have been people who have been pushing the biochem... I mean, the way I think of this is that it's really sort of the two... The two models are the biochemical imbalance model of yeah. neuropsychiatric disease. Yeah. And all we have to do yes. is restore that imbalance, either, you know, increase serotonin levels or increase the number of dendritic spines or increase, you know... Whatever, whatever that biochemical output that they want to claim is, is, is responsible. And then there's what I call the learning model, right? And that is, is that what the psychedelics are doing is actually enhancing learning and enabling modification or modulation by putting the brain in an open state that makes them available. And the people who go for the biochemical model, um, I think you know, some of the data supporting that model is a little bit of a technical artifact of the way that they did those experiments. So, you know, the typical biochemical or chemist's idea of, you know, all we have to do is give psilocybin or, you know, en engineer a new psychedelic that doesn't have a psychedelic profile but has these antidepressant-like properties, right? There, and then they look for some biomarker like plasticity in a culture dish. The thing that they're missing is is that in in a culture dish, what you're looking at in an you know when they look at you know when they dump on psychedelics and they show this massive growth in the dendritic spines and the arborization of the neurons, is is that culture dish neurons are essentially baby neurons without any of the extracellular matrix or inhibitory excitatory connections or modulatory network, right? They're like typically, you know, one week old baby neurons that don't have any of the machinery, the cellular machinery. Don't wear an experience as much right. as... And so we know as neuroscientists that at those neurons in that kind of a, you know, system in the culture system are very plastic, right? Because baby neurons just in general are, are plastic and in a reduced preparation like that, they're especially plastic. Yeah. And the types of plasticity changes that people are reporting who are trying to make this argument for the biochemical model are A, not context dependent, 
B, are not reproduced if you do the same experiment in an intact adult brain. And C, um, are, it's a good thing mm -hmm. that that's not what's happening because the drugs that do those kinds of hyperplastic changes that people are reporting for psychedelics in a dish, the ones that do that in an adult brain are all drugs of abuse. Right. So this idea mm -hmm. that all more plasticity is better and all you need is to measure the dendritic, a drug's ability to induce these biochemical changes and induce mm -hmm. spine changes. Forgets or is unaware of the reality that cocaine, heroin, alcohol, nicotine, all of the addictive drugs, that is the defining property of what they do to the brain. They cause a massive growth in neurons and spines and that type of sort of unchecked plasticity and growth is what we think makes those drugs addictive. And so that's, I think, part of the technical artifact of why people are getting misled towards the biochemical model, but also because they're not paying attention to the fact that if you take away the psychotherapy, if you take away the context, then the clinical trials aren't working as well, right? There's just no support yeah. for the idea that, I mean, yes, ketamine and probably psilocybin as well probably will work faster than an SSRI because, right, to feel the effects of SSRIs, you have to take them for a month um, before you start to feel any relief, whereas ketamine, you start to feel relief almost immediately. But those effects don't last, right? So ketamine, you start to feel better immediately, but then in four days, you're back to being depressed and you have to take it again. And that's because I think the durability of these therapeutic effects are related to the transformation that happens when these psychedelics enable you to learn and reconfigure the memories around your trauma, your depression, your addiction, whatever. And so I think that that durability, the context dependence is related. An integrated, an integrated, course, right, right. Day, like long term, long term. Right. That's the key, long term. Right, not, yeah. right. and like you. Know. Well, there you go, Gould. There you go. You did it. You did it. Well, I, you know. That's awesome. That's awesome. You know what? I heard you talk about. I heard you talk about uh, drugs of abuse versus uh, psychedelics, and I heard you talk about uh, hyperplasticity versus metaplasticity. Uh, maybe we, maybe, do, do you mind, I, I never quite understood this idea, of course. Yeah. You know. <laughs> sure. It's easy for me not to understand <laughs> ideas, but well, uh, you know, let's see whether you can help well, me. Let's see. I mean, it's, it's a slightly complicated idea, but not, not terrible. Okay. So basically metaplasticity is just a fancy way of saying that the ability to induce plasticity changes over time, right? So it's a lot easier to induce plasticity in juvenile or baby neurons or baby brains. It's a lot harder to induce plasticity in adult brains. That's what metaplasticity okay. means. It's that change over development. And there are molecular oh, okay. mechanisms that have been described that enable that. So you know, the change in the receptor subunit composition that makes them more or less leaky to things like calcium. As the brain matures, those subunits just get changed. And so adult and MDA receptors let in less calcium than baby ones, right? And that's kind of the idea for why that change happens over development. And what we are arguing is, is that what psychedelics do is, is that they take that adult, you know, 
mechanism, whatever it is, that has made it harder to induce plasticity in adults and returned it back to the configuration that um, enables that easy plasticity of juveniles. It's not the plasticity itself. It's just the ability to learn it. And so the way to think about that is, is that if you gave somebody a pill and then they took the pill and 30 seconds later they knew how to speak a new language, let's say German, okay, then that would be like inducing plasticity by giving a pill. But if you gave a pill and all you did was enable, now enable them to learn German if they, you know, were exposed to a lot of German and they practiced a lot, that would be more like metaplasticity. So that's the ability to learn a language, not the language in a pill itself, right? Whereas hyperplasticity, typically we see that with drugs of abuse because you take the cocaine and suddenly, you know, you just, you've learned immediately. Cocaine is great. I love it here. I love it there. I love it with coffee. I love it whether I'm hungry or not. I love it wherever I am. I'm willing to break rules to get it. It's just, you've, you've almost sort of broken all of the barriers to the normal type of learning so that you can learn that strong association between how good cocaine makes you feel and, and, Right. Yeah. And so that type of learning is hyperplasticity. And it's a good thing that psychedelics don't seem to do that, because if it, they did, then we would get really worried that they are addictive. And so my concern with the especially with the biochemical model of psychedelics is they're taking the chemists are taking drugs like Ibogaine, which are right now probably our best hope for curing heroin addiction. Right engineering out the part of the uh, drug that I think is so important for enabling the big changes, the learning, and reducing it down to plasticity, and then putting these new compounds in a dish and selecting them for this very property that I'm saying is what makes drugs addictive. It's dangerous. And, yeah, and so we're gonna take heroin, you know, this best cure, best chance for a cure for heroin addiction, and turn it into the next fentanyl. It's just, it's just crazy to me that we're we're yeah, yeah. setting ourselves up for another fentanyl face plant. And I just think we have to be really, really fastidious about understanding the mechanisms and not just jumping to the sort of big pharma playbook of like we want to make a drug that we can patent, that we can you know engineer to make it better, and then we can yes, we can yes, sell yes. it to people and medicalize them for life rather than curing them, right. which is what I think all of us who are in this space are really most excited about is the idea that right. we could cure disease rather than forcing people to be on a pill for the rest of their lives. The way I understand that in the psychedelic science right now there is kind of two main hypotheses floating around about the mechanisms. And one is more of a on the fear reduction hypothesis, which with MDMA really fits. The fear reduction hypothesis really fits with the exposure therapy for trauma because, you know, we understand that, that traumatic memory and the, uh, are so, so powerful and uncomfortable and we use all kinds of dissociative processes to to to, uh, to not experience those memories and not have a chance to process them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the idea that uh, you know decreases the activation in amygdala and all that, mm -hmm. and decreases the activation in insulin, 
or that there's the idea is that it reduces fear, allows you to do good exposure work. And then there's your hypothesis, which is uh, this beautiful reopening of critical period, which they seem kind of a little bit distinct. Do you want to do a unified theory here for me? <laughs> yeah, well, I is guess that, I, is that doable? I, it's doable. Here's what I think. I think that our critical period explanation is um, the mechanism for the durable transformation. It's what enables the person to reconfigure the memories. I do think that... Durable transformation. Yeah, and so I do think that psychedelics have these other properties, like being anti-anxiety or anti-depressive or anti-nociceptive or anti-inflammatory. When we have looked at those other explanations, all of those properties of psychedelics are context independent. In other words, the the anti-anxiety property happens whether you're, you know, whatever the context is, and that's been shown in mouse as well. Same with the antidepressive properties. I think those properties may or may not assist the patient's relationship to the site, to the to the uncovering of the memories, right? So if it's a very traumatic memory, for example, that they're trying to face, you know, maybe MDMA is more appropriate because it brings in this um, feeling, that, that fear reduction element of it. Um, and maybe psilocybin is too rough because it's a lot of cognitive insight without a lot of the, you know, amygdala type of stuff that you're talking about. Ibogaine may be rough for everybody because... Um, you know, it's neither one of those. It's neither, you know, has neither the anti-anxiety properties nor the anti, um, mm. nor the antidepressant properties, right? But nevertheless, mm. Ibogaine works, right? And Ibogaine works better than all the rest of them. So I think that the way I think about it is, is that the, the pro-social, the antidepressant, the anti-nociceptive, the anti-anxiety, the anti-inflammatory, those are all true properties of psychedelics, but similar to, you know, the difference between cognac and red wine and beer, you know, they're flavors, and if the goal is to get you drunk, yeah. you know, the, the flavor can be whatever is appropriate to whatever yeah. your, your patient wants or needs, but mm. I think the therapeutic action here is the critical period reopening. That's what I really think. Okay. So how, uh, let's go back just for one moment, the difference between MDMA and psilocybin. Now, you're saying that your research shows that psilocybin reopens the critical period for social reward learning, for the social bonding, creating those bonds, as well as MDMA yep. reopens it. Given how radically different these experiences are, these drugs are in terms of the subjective experience, and DMA draws people to people, psilocybin not necessarily, or LSD not necessarily. Right. It might be the opposite, actually. So how do you... Well, I think that, you know, again, it's it goes back to the context. I mean, so our results clearly show that MDMA and psilocybin you know, reopen the critical period to the same extent, and they do it for the approximately the same duration. So because the acute subjective effects are also approximately the it's same similar. duration, okay. right? So, yeah. you know, maybe a little bit different, but not much, right? So 
Okay. Um, and the duration is the, is the same. LSD keeps it open a little bit longer because the acute subjective effects are a little bit longer, right? So we yeah. think that the thing that is guiding which critical period gets open is the context. So if you give LSD in a social mm -hmm. context, then you can reopen a social critical period because we think the again, that the social part of the MDMA is sort of like, you know, the cognac flavor. It's beautiful. It's delicious. It's, 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 I don't, I don't know how people describe cognac, but it's very, um, sort of silky and smooth and beautiful. Um, and beer is a little bit more like bubbly and effervescent and feels refreshing in, in a certain way. And nevertheless, they both get you drunk. And I think that that is kind of the main difference between our 2019 nature paper and our 2020, uh, 2023 nature paper is, is that, you know, in the 2019 paper, we were focused on, you know, describing all of the features of cognac because we thought that that was the thing. And then the 23 okay. paper, we're saying, no, no, they're all, alcohol. On alcohol. They're all alcohol. And that, you know, the bubbly effervescence versus the well, cognac. Is... <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I think. Um, so if you then overcame, so let's say you're on psilocybin, you might be a little bit more anxious and self-conscious. Uh, but if you actually move into a social context, you might be able to do a similar kind of relationship work that you would do on MDMA. Is that sort of like yeah. overcome your fear despite the fear, despite the self-consciousness? Don't move away, move towards, and then maybe you will have a, a chance to do some meaningful uh, relational therapy. <laughs> yeah, I actually think that in the future, you know, once we get past some of these original study hurdles and MDMA becomes approved, it will be mm -hmm. useful to do sort of double blind studies where we compare the, the therapist doesn't wow. know whether they're giving MDMA or psilocybin. The patient doesn't mm -hmm. know. And I would be willing to bet that the outcomes would mm -hmm. be similar as long as the therapy was, you know, the main event and the drugs are, and in fact, I have heard, I mean, this is anecdotal, but, you know, I've been talking about this stuff now for, you know, a couple of years. And I've talked to a bunch of people who are doing these ketamine clinics. And they said that they've transformed their um, therapeutic practice after hearing that ketamine is also able to reopen critical period and are trying to modify their intervention to look more like MDMA assisted therapy because they see mm -hmm. the similarity and they, you know, take it yes. to heart that there's a missed opportunity. If you're just treating ketamine like a next generation SSRI and you're not taking advantage of the fact that the critical period stays okay. open for 48 hours after ketamine and that, you know, actually, you know, I keep hinting at this. We have this idea that psychedelics are, the master key for unlocking all critical periods and that you can just yes. unlock different critical periods by changing the context. Well, some of the best existing evidence to support that view is, is that if you give six times back-to-back -back ketamine, which in terms of the time course should be similar to LSD or psilocybin, right, then you can reopen a visual critical period. And so just by changing the context to vision instead of social, 
you can open a visual critical period instead of a social critical period with a drug that has a shorter time course, but if you stack them, you can make it more similar to a longer acting. And so I think that, you know, we are starting to see that, um, that this idea of reopening critical periods um, can affect the psychedelics that aren't particularly pro-social. I mean, ketamine is not particularly pro-social. It's, you know, a dissociative as a matter of fact. And so despite that fact, if it's used in this social context, in the psychotherapeutic context, people are reporting, I mean, at this point, it's just anecdotal, but I would love to see a clinical trial showing, comparing ketamine used in the typical way versus ketamine used in the psychedelic assisted psychotherapy way and I bet you anything the outcomes are going to be stronger for this psychedelic assisted psychotherapy model. Mm, that's interesting. Perhaps we could shift a little bit more to the therapy. You know, from the neurophysiological point of view, what are some of the risks that people should be aware of? How should we think about MDMA assisted therapy and using MDMA? And also, like, how to optimize this experience to actually op obtain the, 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 the best benefits. So one of the questions, maybe, where we could start, uh, it's a big question for me. And I have, an, uh, I have a, sort of an opinion from the information I have gathered, but I want to hear from you. The question of tolerance with multiple uses. Mm. Uh, the question of, of uh, efficacy of of uh, psilocybin and MDMA with multiple uses. Yeah. Uh, tell me what you know from your physiological point of view. On, on all of okay, so do you want that or, or risks, potential risks first? Maybe let's start with that because I think that's a consequential thing. Can one do MDMA or psilocybin-assisted therapy 50 times and have benefits or you only have a few goals yeah. and, uh, and you should pay attention to how you're using it? Yeah, so, I mean, I think we have... There are two sort of separable issues there. One is there is a risk, I think, with trying to do too much too quickly without giving enough space between um, sessions to allow the integration to fully happen. I love the metaphor of composting as a, as a way of understanding this, that, you know, the, the therapeutic work that's happening is essentially, you know, digging up some of the, the garbage or the um the shit in our in our history bringing it up exposing it you know giving it the worms and the nutrients and the bacteria it needs to start to transform into something else and eventually with enough time that compost can turn into flowers but if we don't give enough time yeah. and we just keep going in and digging stuff up then we could just end up with a room full of shit and no flowers. And I think that is potentially a danger of trying to do too much too fast without respecting how long it takes. You know, because there is this there is this idea that, you know, psychedelics are like 20 years of therapy in one day. So it certainly seems to me that some patients are going to feel extremely um, impatient to sort of, you know, because transformation takes time and nice. they feel nice, shitty nice. and they feel like they really want to get over this horrible thing that's been plaguing them their whole lives. And there, I think, will be an impulse to rush. And I can see how that could end up going very badly and overwhelming a person. And I think a lot of the therapists have this insight that, you know, their job is actually to 
to stop the person from coming out of the psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and like trying to change everything all in one day, quit their job, get divorced, move to a new country, right? Like that, I think, impulse is there because you feel relief from this burden that you've been carrying around for so long and you just want to set it down and, and move on with your life. But I think we have to be careful about that. Mechanism. And there's so much optimism. Yeah, there's oh. so much optimism around psychedelics. It's dangerous as, as you know, as great as these therapies are. There's also a danger in terms of its yeah. patients that can give psychedelics. Absolutely. And so then mechanistically, there's a second danger. And the second danger is really kind of, I think, what you were really getting at, uh, which is that we have some evidence from early studies of antidepressants like MAOIs and tricyclic antidepressants that maybe what the mechanism is is not just making more serotonin available at the synapse, but that that perpetual kind of blasting the synapse with too much serotonin triggers the cell to internalize receptors because they're getting activated too much and so the receptors get pulled out. And there was some evidence to support this. And then and, and the next generation SSRIs may be working the same way. Um, we don't know that, but that's, that's certainly one idea out there, that it's not the availability of serotonin, but the rebalancing of the re proportion of receptors at the synapse. There is some evidence to suggest that microdosing psilocybin does the same thing, that basically what wow. it's, and, and that's because people who microdose will re report, you know, some people especially get very tolerant very fast. Like they, they do it for a month and then suddenly it's not working anymore. And that mm -hmm. might be because you know, kind of overstimulating these receptors is pulling them in. It's not clear whether or not psychedelics are, you know, true psychedelics or psychedelic doses of these drugs are doing the exact same thing or something slightly different. So my, my working model is, is that, yes, they are hitting the reset button, which tells the, the synapses to be you know, changing the receptor subunit composition or changing the uh, array of, of uh, receptors in the synapse. But I think it's the difference, just to use an, another, you know, the computer analogy I, I brought up earlier, if we're on a, on a video call and we have a slow connection speed and it's just, there's like a delay, it might be annoying and eventually we might say, I need a better computer or a faster server, but we're not, it's not necessarily going to, you know, trigger us to reset right then and there, right? And so I do think there's a possibility that what's necessary for this critical period reopening is a hard, is a signal that's so disruptive, that so freezes the screen for 10 seconds at a time, and that that causes the cell to not just change the receptor subunit composition, but do all the other things that hit the that are re required for critical period reopening including dissolving the extracellular matrix engaging the transcriptional network of genes that have to get turned on and off to make those critical period openings happen right and so i think if we overuse the psychedelics if we're using them back to back to back too often without allowing the reset mechanism to fully you know reset and then go back to adult before we reset again, 
then we could be interfering with the ability of that machinery to cause those big changes. That's that's my hunch. We don't know that for sure, this, but this is my informed. Do you write poetry? Do you write poetry? This sounds like poetry. <laughs> no. the freezing, freezing of the screen. The res resetting of the matrix. Some of those those words just came out of you. It could be like straight uh, a hypnotic little. No. You know, I mean, you know how they do those little those little music for whatever you know for relaxation that's that's probably you should record some of that. that's great no i'm a terrible poet by the way i during pandemic i was writing all this poetry and then after pandemic ended i read some of them and i was like wow i hate all of this it's terrible <laughs> so too much too quickly uh, is not a good idea. That's that's very important. Now, what do you think about uh, about the kind of multiple uses? Do you think that after you know somebody has you? Okay, so first of all, how uh, how uh, often is not too quickly for you for like, like MDMA assisted therapy? What would be a ballpark sort of figure that you know you think you would you would recommend? Yeah, I I think I think it's going to have to be tailored to the person, right? So I, I do. Yes. You know, I, I do know of instances, for example, where somebody who is extremely blocked, you know, and extremely um, sort of rigid in their thought patterns will take a psychedelic and have no psychedelic experience at all because psychologically they are so afraid of losing control that they've kind of, you know, held their psyche from really exploring right. the whole play space that, you know, LSD or psilocybin or MDMA mm -hmm. enables them. And so for someone like that, for example, I could imagine kind of onboarding them with, you know, microdoses for a little while, loosen things up and then go in with wow. like a big macro dose. Wow. Or mm -hmm. I can imagine some cases where, you know, They've had like a really big experience and they just had an epiphany and really they're good and they don't need to do it again, maybe ever, right? Or maybe mm -hmm. in a year, right? Depending on how big mm -hmm. the epiphany is, how close they were to that insight before they did the psychedelic, right? If like they were just on the precipice of that insight and then the psychedelic just unlocked the last two or three doors and now they have so much rich compost to work with and they can really garden yes. with it for the rest of their lives, then they may be one and yeah. done, right? We just, I think that this is where the art of the clinician is going to be really yeah. important in kind of making a judgment call about whether yeah. or not to go right back in. On the other hand, I do think there will be people for whom, you know, they had the dose, they got really close to an epiphany and then they just felt blocked. And right after the trip, they still have this yeah, feeling nice. of emotional constipation. And they want to go back in because they really, they feel like, oh, I was so close. And then, and then I started Sounds coming familiar. back, right? And so I think we're going to have to tailor it depending on what the psychological um, sort of barriers a person has up and how many need to be removed in order to get to the transformation. I think that these drugs should really be treated as, as sacred drugs. And the reason I think that they should be treated as sacred is, is uh, I, I have a feeling that um, that they, you can't be using these drugs over and over and over and expecting the same therapeutic benefits. So 
uh, and if you use them in contexts that are not proper, then actually not only that you won't, you might not get any benefits, you might have some fun, maybe, but in fact you can get re-traumatized. So maybe like if we, if we think about things like post-dosing, you know, could you talk about that, about returning to the world after your first psychedelic ever psychotherapy session and returning to your regular life. Yeah. What can you say about that? All right. I mean, you again, two questions there. Let me just quickly answer the first one, which is that, you know, I think you're right. And I do have some feedback from people I know who are psychonauts who say, you know, they did, they did, they had a great time doing recreational psychedelics for years and years and years. But now the magic is gone and they don't really have the same powerful kind of overwhelming and they have a little bit of regret over, you know, not saving some for a midlife crisis <laughs> later on in life. And mm -hmm. they're just not convinced that they're going to have the same magical effect. I don't know if that's true, but I think that there is that intuition that some of the power of these drugs is the noetic property, that feeling that you've become exposed to the really real and what makes that that feeling so powerful is the strangeness of it all and if it's not strange anymore if you just feel like i walk this path every day then that magic that comes with strangeness kind of ceases to overwhelm you and make you and that might be mechanistically related to some of the things that i just talked about as to the Second question, which is really about, you know, what are the potential harms if we don't treat them like sacred drugs? I think that's like a really important point. You know, these are very powerful medicines and neuroscientists have been looking for, you know, master keys for unlocking critical periods for a hundred years. But honestly, uh, and the reason is because, you know, it has the potential to transform um, neuropsychiatric practice um, and, you know, open up all kinds of other therapeutics. But there is something that we need to be mindful of, which is that when you restore the brain to this childlike state of vulnerability and susceptibility, mm -hmm. you are essentially mm -hmm. making yourself susceptible to good things, but also bad things. And I think probably the mm -hmm. classic example of, you know, reopening your critical period and making yourself susceptible to bad influence is the story of Charles Manson, right? There's a guy who gave psychedelics, LSD, to, you know, a bunch of hippies for weeks at a time and then turned them into killers who were you know, in his cult and part of his family. And because he used his own, you know, ideology to convert them into his team of killers who are going to enact his vision of Helter Skelter, right? Like this is, this is exactly what we would predict by reopening someone's critical period and then exposing them to a bad context. Less extreme mm -hmm. versions of that would be, you know, reopening. They're in this open, vulnerable state with MDMA for at least mm -hmm. two weeks after the acute subjective effects mm -hmm. wear off. And then you mm -hmm. return them to their chaotic lives where they don't have time to integrate, where they have to pay bills and pick up kids and cook dinner and clean houses and fight with spouses and all those other chaos, right? 
or worse, you know, they go back to their the person who's been traumatizing them. They have an abusive partner, emotional abuse, mm-hmm. physical mm-hmm. abuse, whatever. And then what you're going to do is because they're in that vulnerable state, not only re-traumatize them, but probably lock these memories in in a much more yeah. strong way than if you Powerful hadn't given way. the psychedelic yes. at all. Yeah, these, these drugs help you open up. I mean, when we talk about relationships, it becomes super open. You know, and then you leave the therapy and you go back to your regular world. But these people that that you might be a close family, they they haven't taken these drugs. They are in their regular state. They are, they might not be open at all, and they might just roll your eyes on you. And that might be really yeah really kind of damaging. That you know that we I think we need to pay a lot of attention at the context outside of therapy and what happens outside of therapy. Yeah, so for me, I mean, given that, the way that I think about psychedelics, and and this is, again, back to the sort of fight with the biochemical model versus the learning model, you know, for me, what the learning model suggests is that the ideal way of thinking about these drugs is not a pill that you take home and medicalize for life, but rather what we're doing is open mind surgery, right? We are giving it a medicine and an intervention. The intervention itself takes eight hours, just like open heart surgery takes about eight hours to do, right? So we we have this very Mm. long intervention. Mm. And then we protect our patients by giving them bed rest for two weeks afterwards. We don't send them back out to climb Mm. stairs and, you know, run basketball games Mm. or whatever. And if we believe that that approach is going to cure them, then that long intervention followed by the long recovery is worth it because who wouldn't rather have open heart surgery and be cured than have to be medicalized for life? And so I, right. the way that I'm thinking about this is open mind surgery and that the ideal way to implement this would be to allow people not to return to their chaotic lives, but built in as part of their, you know, package right is not just the surgery itself but also you know stroke patients stroke patients you don't just do the intervention to unblock the artery or the blood vessel you say okay we, we unblocked it and now here's two three months of physical therapy that's part of the therapy relating to this stroke and if you don't have the physical therapy we can unblock it but you're still going to have paralysis right and so what if we see psychedelics is that type of intervention then the psychotherapy that happens after the intervention is just as important as the physical therapy is to the stroke patient after they have the blockage removed People really need to be uh, ready to to change. They need to be open and prepared that things might change. And those changes are not always predictable. That's That's the difficulty also. Right. Well, I do think that, you know, one of the pushbacks that I get a lot with this idea is, well, how are you going to pay for it? And the truth is, is that, you know, the burden, the economic burden of neuropsychiatric health problems is very high. Lost work days, lost productivity, all those kinds of measures that, you know, being counters like to, to tabulate. And the truth is, is that what I'm imagining is something like you come out of your psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and then you go to a retreat center, possibly for a month. And, you know, you set it up so that that's just part of the surgery, right? It's just part of the cost of it. 
and you give people, you know, a stipend so that they can hire a babysitter or whatever, and you just give them that space, that care center full of people who are just like physical therapists, allowing you to build up the sort of practice, the habit of changing your habits around your addiction, around your depression, around your PTSD. Wonderful. And, you know, utopian idea given the state of the healthcare system. Well, you know, it's difficult in the United States because we don't have that kind of infrastructure. But if we can get people to start thinking of it more like stroke and less like yeah. SSRIs or cold medicine, yeah. right, then I think we could possibly make the case, you know, that this is financially the better way, like that we could make a, a, a financial calculation that says if we can cure, you know, if we get durable results with this versus that, then it's worth it. But, you know, there are places where this system is already in place. So, um, you know, I've heard in Germany they have a system where if you have burnout, you can take a year off from your life and go and live in one of these retreat centers, a sanctuary of sorts, to just mm -hmm. sit around and deal with your burnout, right? And you have no mm -hmm. other responsibilities mm -hmm. than that. And the German mm -hmm. government has decided that that is cost effective because, you know, people Amazing. return from that ready to work again, ready to engage in society, yeah. ready to be productive. And so in that mm -hmm. kind of a model, I could certainly imagine, mm -hmm. you know, comparing people who go to, you know, burnout camp for without psychedelics plus with psychedelics. And I'm guessing that the people who have the psychedelics are going to have a more effective burnout recovery um, in that sanctuary mm -hmm. setting. And, I, you know, I, it's not impossible to imagine. I think, you know, for all of these, you know, tech bros out there who are taking psychedelics and imagining that they're now like much more creative, how come, why aren't we getting more creative about these types of solutions? Why are we pretending that psychedelics are causing this major transformation in I'm our- I'm all pro that. <laughs> yes. and, and yet yes. we're, we're back to like old fashioned biochemical models of making money off of these things, which A, haven't worked yes. and B, you know, aren't that creative. They're, they're old fashioned. Right, wonderful. Open, open mind. Would you be would you be greatly opposed to say to the sim simplistic uh, conceptualization like psilocybin, open, open mind psychosurgery and DNA, open heart psychosurgery? <laughs> I I wouldn't mind, although I wouldn't say psycho because our view yeah. is is that. If we're right about this critical period reopening master key idea, they won't just be psychosurgery, right? Like we think yeah. the MDMA is not just open heart. It actually, you know, I, let me just give you an example of why I, I'm nervous about, you know, narrowly defining it too soon. Yes, um, yes. So one of the things that we know about the way that children learn how to walk is, is that they kind of do it in a different way than we do, right? They're very playful. They're not goal-directed in the way that they do. They practice things. They just do it because they're curious. They're, they're playing. They're not, like, easily deterred by failure. They just get up again and do it. And so the average child walks approximately the equivalent of seven football fields an hour when they're learning how to walk. The only time... Mm -hmm 
I've seen an adult do that is on MDMA. MDMA makes people, you know, adult humans dance around like fools for eight hours, right? They don't, they're not good at dancing. Good exercise, good exercise. <laughs> they're not huh? good at it. Great they exercise. keep repeating the same thing over and over again, but they're enjoying yeah. the activity of moving, right? Like they're playing and that play and that movement, I think makes MDMA particularly, I think, exciting for somebody if I'm trying to use it and pair it with say motor learning or you know playing a motor game to recover movement in an arm after stroke right mm, I'm not sure that psilocybin we're, is the right one there. right and so like if we say open motor surgery for you know like I just yeah, don't want to okay. construct it so I like yes. open mind yes, surgery yes, yes. um just sort of in a more general way. And I like leaving it at mm. surgery as opposed to psychosurgery versus neurosurgery mm. because I want to kind of keep it flexible that even well, things like motor learning have a psychological component to it that has to do with like goal-directed versus, you know, play-type behavior. And that mm. that we don't actually have to force psychedelics into these boxes the context will do that work for us. Biology is the is really the twenty second twenty first century science. This this is there's more mystery in biology and there's more questions and there's more complexity on that level, that explanatory level than anywhere else. And I wonder, you know, from that point of view, you must be thinking about big questions like questions of consciousness. Tell me how you understand consciousness. Yeah, so I mean, I think a lot of neuroscientists got into neuroscience because they were interested in those big questions like what is consciousness, how can we explain it from a biological point of view, and especially those of us who um, got interested in psychedelics, you know, this seems to me to be an, an awesome way to try and, you know, here's a, here's a molecule, a compound that you can take, it looks very similar to molecules that are floating around endogenously in your brain. And when you take this molecule and it interacts with your brain, suddenly consciousness changes, right? So if you were looking for a tool for trying to understand those big questions, psychedelics, you know, are very exciting for the average neuroscientist who's, who's engaged mm -hmm. with these kinds of questions. But honestly, when I had that first idea of, of taking that approach, I was in college and Eventually, I just sort of thought, well, you know, the bigger the question, the smaller the answer, the smaller the question, the bigger the answer. I need to focus in on smaller questions because I'm not satisfied by sort of the philosopher's answers that are, you know, there aren't much by way of answer. They're just more questions. Right. And so I focused in mm -hmm. and sort of backburnered these big questions of consciousness. Interestingly. What we have, and this is something that we're still working on, but I, I mentioned that, you know, we're really trying to figure out this context dependence and sort of the molecular mechanisms relating to extracellular matrix and context and coincidence detection and how does the cell know. But some of our ideas from that come from a long history of studies showing that you can reopen critical periods visual critical periods, um, sensory, other sensory critical periods 
with sensory deprivation, right? So you can put a mouse mm-hmm. in a dark room for a month and reopen its critical period for vision. You can, you know, deprive them of their whiskers, which is their main sensory touch system, and you can reopen the sensory critical period. And so we actually also have evidence that um, we can reopen the social critical period by doing these deprivation techniques. And those mechanisms have a lot of molecular overlap with psychedelic-assisted, I mean, psychedelic-induced reopening of, of critical periods, and they're context-dependent, right? So you can't open a visual critical period just by closing the eyes. You have to close the eyes and give them visual experience afterwards so that visual context is required. So there's a lot of overlap mm-hmm, between mm-hmm. deprivation-induced mm-hmm. critical period reopening and mm-hmm. psychedelic-induced critical period reopening. Interestingly... Religious practices mm-hmm. throughout the world, throughout history, use, use have, have used deprivation to achieve mystical states, right? Mm-hmm. Like live mm-hmm. in a cave for a month, go live in a hermitage. Mm-hmm. And if you're a Zen Buddhist monk, you're doing these, mm-hmm. you know, mo- meditations and living in monasteries and stuff to achieve what they call beginner's mind. If you were looking for mm-hmm. a neurobiological term to explain beginner's mind, beginner's mind critical period reopening would be it, right? That is a Mm. neurobiological word Mm. to describe beginner's mind. And so I think we may have accidentally discovered sort of this overlap between this mystical states induced by religious practices and the mystical states induced by psychedelics, this altered state of consciousness that's shared by both of those things is just comes down to what it feels like to reopen critical periods. And if that's true, Mm -hmm. then we can start to ask these questions about consciousness and really like understand what it is that we mean by consciousness and consciousness altering drugs. In a way that doesn't split the the physical and the create some sort of an extra dimension. It's not necessary. I I am a physicalist, so I do not, I consider you know, these explanations of psychedelics that require entering mm-hmm. into a new dimension, sort of uh, inflated ontology. In other words, I, I think mm-hmm. that it's like evoking an explanation that you don't need. Yeah. Um, it's just exactly extra. Um, yeah, I'm totally with you. And I, I think, you know, people who have had these very powerful experiences and then those powerful experiences pale and they become less pronounced. I think people really crave them, and then they, uh, you know, my understanding is, of course, that people really get committed to this, and they kind of talk about them. They don't feel that anymore, but they talk about it, and they want that. They want that there's something special to exist, maybe for them to be more, something like that. I mean, well, you know, but, um, da- I think Daniel or David... Broom is the last name, B-R-O-O-M. He wrote a book mm-hmm. um, called The Evolution of Morality and Religion. And he makes the case that morality and religion are just sort of the um, human versions of a very elaborate social interaction, right? And that we mm-hmm. evolved those things because as social beings, we need some kind of organizing morality and implementing that organizing morality is aided by believing yeah. in a, a yeah. consequence that is beyond the group itself. <clears throat> and so 
you know, there is some neurobiological evidence to support his view that, you know, there are brain regions that are particularly activated when people are having religious experiences, when people have seizures in those brain regions, they will report having religious epiphanies. There does seem to be a brain mechanism yeah. for religiosity yeah. that gets triggered when, you know, for example, in some of the types of neurodegenerative disease, when when the brain hits that part, like when the neurodegeneration hits those brain regions, people will tend to get either very religious or very artistic. So there could be a neural substrate for that and an evolutionary explanation mm. for why mm. a subset of mm. any social group is more susceptible to, you know, maybe it's 20% of the social group needs more. to be religious in order to make, energy. yeah, yeah, metaphysical thing, to, in, yeah. to establish the social group dynamics at this very high mm -hmm. order level. So Yeah, so there's, that's a, that's a whole other topic, I guess. Do you know a guy <laughs> called Ogi Ogas? No. I bumped into this book, and he totally like so lines up with how I think about uh, about consciousness from a phenomenological point of view and all uh -huh. that stuff. It's a childlike, simplistic book about the evolution of of uh, he calls it the mind uh -huh. uh, from the first biological creatures, and he just shows how it's what he called the mind, which is consciousness emerges as a property of, 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 of the, the action, you know, of the, of the adaptation to this new, and, and, and he shows these actual very specific moments of emergence of new kinds of minds. It's just beautiful. You should send me that book, because I, I, that sounds interesting. I would, I would read that book for sure. Um, especially because yes, as we start yes, thinking I'll... about, you know, octopuses, I mean, part of the reason to study octopuses is, is that they don't fall in the normal evolutionary trajectory. Mm -hmm. You know, they're so evolutionarily distant from us. Their brains are much From more us. like a like a snail than like ours. We're more closely related to a mm. starfish than we are to, mm. you know, an octopus. And yet they mm. seem to have, you know, theory of mind-like behaviors. They seem to have the ability mm. to, you know, that might relate more to the fact that they have incredible locomotor dexterity, so they're able to manipulate their environment, um, and they have memory, and they have, you know, they're predators, so evolutionarily, this theory of mind-like behavior might have been selected for because it helped them capture prey, which is a very different explanation than why we are, you know, ex people think we have um, theory of mind is because we're extremely social. Octopuses are not, ex they're mm -hmm. extremely asocial, and yet they're also mm -hmm. top predators. And so, you know, I like mm -hmm. thinking about these outlier cases to challenge sort of our rules for how we get to complex behaviors like consciousness. Mm -hmm. yeah. You did very interesting research with octopuses that shows kind of that the, the molecules themselves are more important than the than the structures, the brain structures, right? Yeah. I mean, I basically, you know, there's a whole field, and especially when I first started working in psychedelics about 10 years ago, um, you know, the field was very much set on this idea that everything that's interesting and cool about psychedelics, you can only study in humans. And because how do you measure consciousness and finding God and mystical experiences in a mouse, you can't. Um, and so the whole field was very much biased towards fMRI imaging of humans um, on psychedelics. And the problem for me as a neuroscientist is, is that, 
you know, those types of studies are very low resolution, very low temporal resolution, very low spatial resolution. And, you know, they kind of amount to blobology, you know, like you just point to a brain region and say, see, this lit up and without really being able to. <laughs> That's conscious. <laughs> right. And, and, and the problem is, is that, you know, it could light up because the inhibitory neurons went, started firing. It could light up because the excitatory neurons started firing. Mm -hmm. It could not light mm -hmm. up because those two things happened in exact the same amount and they canceled each other out, right? So it's really sort of a false sense of understanding to just point to a brain region and say, see, that's where it is, right? And I think that that point is most elegantly made when you look at an animal that doesn't have an amygdala, that doesn't have a nucleus accumbens, mm -hmm. that doesn't mm -hmm. have a default mode network and yet they are they take the drug and they have exact or very similar phenomenologically response to these psychedelic drugs and it really challenges this sort of circuit mapping which i do as well like my lab mostly that's what we do we do circuit mapping we're trying to figure out you know anatomical regions that are connected to each other and how they communicate and i'm not saying that that activity doesn't have value but it's just not telling us as much about the cause as we think it is. Yeah. So I, I remember being in grad school when the neuroimaging came in in full force and I was like, holy my that's a, that's a bad thing because everybody's focusing on these images and it really, uh, you know, as if, oh, now we understand because we have this, this, this freaking brain image here. It's, uh, anyway, um, Gu, I, uh, I think you're probably ready to go. Yes. You probably have <laughs> enough of me. I so appreciate that you've, uh, you've given, uh, given me and, uh, the listeners all this time. It's wonderful. Who do you think I should talk to next about MDMA assisted therapy, MDMA and some interesting topics around that? Well, I think if you haven't already, you should definitely talk to Jennifer Mitchell, um, she is the first author on both of the phase three MDMA assisted um, clinical trials. Um, and, she, yeah. and then also I would say Bera Yazar Klozinski, who's, you know, the chief medical officer at MAPS. And she, um, you know, she's the last author on the second paper. And, you know, she has a lot of sort of insight about where we're headed with the regulatory policy around this. Okay. Um, I think both of those women, I, you know, very much have a complementary view to what I'm thinking about and, and explaining essentially their results, right? Um, so those are two names. That People can find you at? Um, so yeah, my lab's website is www.dolanlab.org. Um, I also would- Dolan Lab. D-O-L-E-N-Lab.org. Yeah, -E That's right. Um, the other thing that if people are interested in learning more about or if you've got some millionaires in your audience who want to make a donation, we are currently fundraising to do the human clinical trial for stroke. Um, and so that page is uh, fathom.org, and that's P H A. Uh, T-H-O-M dot org um, and it's basically like the idea is psychedelic healing adjunct therapy harnessing open malleability and we're sort of taking this idea of we can reopen with you know change which critical period we are reopening by changing the context and trying to apply it to people who've had stroke 
and who did not, you know, fully recover function. And so we want to reopen their critical periods and give them um, better physical therapy and hopefully restore more uh, of their motor function. Okay, great. Fathom.org. If anybody has any extra cash, <laughs> any extra cash, a million bucks. Yes, we need a million <laughs> bucks, basically. <laughs>